Just because we can't get enough DS9, Clay, we're going to be heading to a non-fiction version of DS9. We're going to talk about the, the uh, documentary now. Have you ever you ever thought your life would plummet so far that you'd be watching a Star Trek documentary and talking about it? But here we here we are. Oh, I I don't don't say that to me. I love this shit. I love <laughs> uh, I love behind the scenes documentaries. You can't actually see it, but I'm dressed in a tuxedo and inexplicably singing, even though I'm not known for that. <laughs> it's convinced you to buy a uh, James Darren. LP and everything and just put it on and really enjoy yourself yeah in the moment. did they did they were they not able to get him to sing or something so they had everybody else do it maybe it's like Adele he just blew out his vocal cords on that final episode or something like that yeah. he's never he, been the same the magic of Las Vegas he looks the exactly the same <laughs> as he did 25 years ago <laughs> he also they talk about in the documentary he basically is Vic Fontaine like there's yeah, no yeah. there's nothing except you put James Darren in front of a camera and uh Tell him what to tell, like what to say, and he sounds exactly the same as Vic Fontaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody else looks kind of like they got left in the dryer a little bit too long, which yeah. is what happens to you when you age. Yeah, but he looks more or less exactly the same, except Sirach Lofton. He actually, I never really thought that he could have been uh, um, Avery Brooks' son until mm-hmm. this, where I was like, oh my god, yeah, he looks a lot like him. Oh really? Really? Yeah, I, I didn't get that, but he. He's um maybe it's just the goatee. You, I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't have a shaved. Head. Is he wearing hats in this? I don't remember what his hair looks like. He might he might not have a shaved head either. I'm not really no, sure. I don't know. Um. Anyway, we're going to talk about what we left behind. But first, we're going to play some music. Accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Today we're going to be talking about what we left behind, looking back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine. This is a documentary that's 140 minutes, directed by Ira Stephen Bear and David Zappone. May 13th, 2019 is when it came out. This is, uh, as I said, a documentary taking a retrospective look at Star Trek Deep Space Nine, its influence, meaning, and legacy. documentary was produced by 455 Films. Shout Studios released it. The documentary also features several of the writers breaking the story of a hypothetical eighth season of the series, Working with CBS Digital, scenes from all seven seasons have been remastered in high definition. And I think that's as good a place as any to start, Clay. I mm. think that, uh, I think the, the, where we, in the previous episode where we were talking about the show, I think I got a little bit critical and a little bit, um, maybe not negative, but I was certainly highlighting the reasons why I think the DS9 is particularly maybe overrated or something like that, or the, the weaknesses that people forget about it. I think this show will be a little bit different because the uh, the documentary is a very much a celebration of the show, and yeah. I think that um, really one of the biggest takeaways is that I'm I'm just going to be super disappointed that they're never going to remaster the entire thing because it, it looks pretty. It, actually, I think it looks gorgeous in a lot of in a lot of scenes when they remastered for this and they show like the. It's just a. Um, you know, they talk about how it's like a darker series and everything. I think this show is just more interestingly lit and designed than Next Generation and TOS are. Like, there's a there's a really like nice look to it. Like, they they use shadows a lot. The lighting is sort of uh, native to the sets and everything. It's not like they have artificial lighting pumping in the entire time. It, it looks it looks really cool and it looks really good in HD. And it's unfortunate that we're not going to get that anytime soon or if at all. Yeah, the HD stuff looked really great. Um... Uh, it's, it's funny how it, when you're watching stuff now, you know, that stuff doesn't even really register a lot unless it's, it's, it's kind of juxtaposed with stuff that isn't 
remastered mm-hmm. and uh there were a couple shots in there that weren't remastered and seeing those two side by side it really does make it stand out at how good the show would look if they did uh re- remaster the entire thing and i i think it looks like they shot it in widescreen intentionally too because it, it doesn't have the 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 remastered stuff is in 16 by 9 and it, you don't have the right. tng problem where they knew they were shooting a 4 by 3 image so you could actually like see the grips and stuff on the edge of the frame because mm-hmm. they know that they're out of the way of the camera but they just have to be close enough ds9 looks like it was um almost intentionally shot not that way it looks like it was in shot in native like 16 by 9 aspect ratio yeah, I'd be curious to see what what kind of work went into remastering it. So, if there's a documentary about the making of a documentary, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> but uh, as far as the design goes, you know, I think I think the HD really helps to bring some of that stuff to the forefront. Because um, I, I I think I was saying in the last episode how I don't really think as as nicely designed as it is, I don't really think of uh anything in particular as like the standout design element yeah like i don't i don't have a like a hard picture in my mind of of the promenade the way that i do of of uh uh the bridge of the enterprise and stuff and even even watching this again i was uh, or watching this documentary and that stuff i was thinking about it and it's it's very interesting how like there's not really i don't know the designs for the show are very good but they're not iconic. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't think the Bajoran uniform is particularly iconic. Like, you know, it's not something that I would really like to wear or draw, you know? Right, yeah. Uh, the way the way you do the the Starfleet uniform. Um, and all the all the new stuff they added to it, while good, it doesn't have that, that uh, the iconography that, that other series do. And, uh, I mean, maybe that's just a matter of them, all the other stuff... You know, Starfleet is Starfleet, so any any version of Starfleet is going to retain some of that stuff. Yeah, uh, and that is so iconic that it's tough to top it. But um, yeah, it, all of the design of Deep Space Nine definitely ha- is is of the same piece. Let's put it that way. It's all really good, and it all feels like Deep Space Nine, and it doesn't feel like other shows. Yeah, it's um, I think it's just it's it's just the lighting on the station and everything really like the lighting is really what kind of picks up when you remaster things like this. Yeah. Like you, you kind of see what the intention of things were and it doesn't mm-hmm. just look like a kind of washed out image that is appearing in front of you. And I think that they just like, they, the sets are darker and more, um, I don't know this. There's, there's just more going on in the sets. It looks like, like the promenade mm-hmm. set is kind of interesting. Oh, they put like lighting around the edges of the, uh, the, like the sort of overpass and everything like that. And, you know, the shops all feel uh, realistic when they show you a remastered thing of Quark's bar. It simultaneously looks empty, but full at the same time. Like you don't really notice the bottles in the standard definition right, and things right. like that. So it, it it's just nice to, and I'm sure it's one of those things where, if you started watching a remastered version of this, you would forget what the standard definition looked like and you would stop thinking that it looks so impressive. But when you right, certainly right. when you cut back and forth between the two, it's like night and day about what looks good and what doesn't look good. As someone who makes the um the images for the website, when you go get a standard definition screen grab, it looks like just like an erased out smudgy mess of something. Oh yeah. 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 <clears throat> That's why when uh whenever I do the the images for um badass, I, I specifically image capture them off of the hd versions that we have because when you look at those next to the standard definition it just looks like 
dog shit. Yeah, it does. It's it's funny. How I'll tell you, around. remastering really goes a long way for even it, it 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 makes good stuff look great or or even better, and it looks terrible stuff look great too. Because yep. over the uh, the the break, I you know we, we, I was hanging out with some people and, and we had thrown on the Masters of the Universe movie, which is a terrible movie, uh, but it looked fantastic. <laughs> it looked so good. Thanks to uh, the remaster. And then after that, we were watching Over the Top, which is also, I mean, it's not like a visually outstanding movie. looked great. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, even if it's, if it's something you don't particularly like, you just, you can, you get the interested in how the thing eventually looks at some point. You can be like distracted by how good it looks or something, I suppose. Um, So we can talk about what we left behind. It's an interesting little documentary. I think that uh, my general takeaway from this is like, it's very much a celebration of the show. Uh, this is not a critical, incisive look at Deep Space Nine or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's produced by the people who made it. It is a celebration of the show. Iris Stephen Bear in the documentary says he did it for the actors to get their due. Mm. Um, I think it covers a lot, and it's a two-hour movie that I, I feel flies by. I don't feel it drags at yeah. all, and I feel like they fit a lot of information. And maybe my biggest problem with it is it feels like there could have been more. I know it had to be uh, crowdfunded to get it done, but it, it feels like they barely touched the surface with a lot of things, even though they, they uh, it, it has the the breadth of the ocean, but the depth of a, a puddle, I guess, would be my main criticism of mm. it. But I really like it other than that. Yeah, I thought it was great. You know, as I said <clears throat> at the top, I love these kinds of, you know, lookbacks and documentaries and stuff uh, about shows and whatnot. And uh, I thought it was, I thought what I, what I really liked about this is that it was being directed and shepherded by the showrunner for the show. Yeah. So the conversations you were getting in, uh, out of the interviews felt a little bit more, um, honest and and they they kind of they they weren't afraid of kind of jabbing at each other a little bit or like questioning stuff or bringing up difficult stuff uh the way you might get if it's an outsider trying to ask you questions about this stuff um i i could watch two hours of iris Stephen bear asking the former president of uh uh, paramount tv really tough questions Mm -hmm. (laughs) like like uh why did it take what was the hesitancy of of letting cisco have a bald head and the guy being like well uh well black people uh we couldn't <laughs> oh boy um he's got a sweater tied uh, <laughs> yeah and then then asking him about terry farrell and he's like well you know uh she <laughs> the money and uh you yeah. see okay you see ted Danson, and uh, you know uh, that that was really interesting to me, and and seeing them in the group shots was nice because again they were talking fairly candidly about stuff. Um, I loved the writers' room stuff. I thought that was great, and mm-hmm. honestly, that episode they broke fantastic. I would love to see that episode. Interesting. I, a lot of the um, a lot of people say they don't like it. I'm I don't know what I think about it. Uh, I, well, I guess we can start there because it's kind of the. It's kind of the spine of the movie, really. Like everything, it it flows through everything, and it's the arc that carries the entire movie. So they brought back five of the writers, and uh, they wrote this season eight premiere that is supposed to be shot now, so you could use the same actors. So it would be twenty years after the show ended, basically. Mm-hmm. And 
the, the, yeah, the, it's a, it's a good look at how I guess Ron Moore was being interviewed. And he said it's fairly close to how they actually wrote the show. Um, it's the same idea of like the process behind everything is pretty similar to what they actually ended up with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I I think that that episode, I think the episode they came up with works as a works as like a mystery setup for a modern TV show. It didn't feel particularly like a DS9 episode. It felt like they've all been sort of changed by the past 20 years of writing for mm-hmm. television and that they have mm-hmm. more of a modern take on it. Like they they kill Nog right at the beginning right at the beginning right. of it. Great choice. Yeah. <laughs> and um other than that, I think it's I think it's good. My my favorite part of the uh, thing that I was really interested in was that the Bajorans have converted the Jem'Hadar, which makes a lot yeah, of sense to I me. Like I thought that, that was really, that was really cool. cool. I would I would like to see that. Yeah, I liked. I thought that was great. I was a little bit on on fence about Vedic Kira, but seeing where they went with that in terms of her bringing in the Jem'Hadar, I really liked it because it's it it presents her as this. Uh, she's put aside her warring ways to become a a a, a religious figure but it's like no she's also still fairly embroiled in that and is now amassing a, a an army that will quote unquote protect bajor yeah yeah i the stuff the one choice that i didn't like was uh <clears throat> bashir being part of section 31 i don't yeah. i don't like yeah. that that, that doesn't I'd, track with me <laughs> i'd agree with that i I thought it was a little bit clumsy how they brought everybody back. Like everyone just comes back for a surprise birthday party, sort of, which felt a little bit strange and a little bit like clunky as as the way to go. What I really liked was, um, and I, for some reason I, I like never even really considered that happening. But Jake coming back and meeting the second son, his younger mm. brother, I thought that was mm-hmm. really fascinating. That would be a really interesting thing to do. And you know, they, I. <laughs> I laugh at the the gratuitous uh, Jake takes a shower scene, which is yeah. fun. <laughs> he's in the shower, and then uh, the best part was the animation because it's like he's in the shower, and then all of a sudden the white light shows up, and he like gets transported, but he's still nude. Yeah. <laughs> and outside of that, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. I I, I agree that I also don't like Bashir as Section Thirty One because it feels like that's a um. You know, for things like Kira, I can kind of be like, 20 years is a long time. Who knows how people have changed over the course of 20 years? And like, yeah. I'm not going to say that any character motivation is unbelievable at that point because it's such a long time. But Bashir, if you did that turn, I would need a huge amount of explanation as to why Bashir did that at that point. Right. Like I, the right. other characters I can kind of buy with just being like, yeah, this is the way it is now. But Bashir feels very wrong to be in that situation. Yeah, I would agree. And the other thing I found really interesting because I... I <clears throat> I was kind of thinking it as they were doing this, and eventually they they brought it up, which was they couldn't come up with a good excuse to bring Odo back, which I thought was really interesting. Because <laughs> they were like, well, we have this cop, and then I think Ron Moore was like, I don't know, you're really going to have to sell it to me that he's going to come back from this. And I was like, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, yeah, they haven't they haven't mentioned him. when uh, uh, They have to send Kira to get him. Kira, he would come back for Kira, yeah. The 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 thing I like the least, probably even more than Bashir, it, the Bashir turn is uh, the idea that, um, and I think maybe this is where you flip it and it makes a little bit more sense. Uh, I don't like the idea that they all come back to the station because Vic is dying. That's kind of dumb. Oh, but, is, is that why they come? Yeah. Back? Oh, I I thought they came back because Quark. I thought Nog set it up to ha- just have them all come back for some reason. They come back because of Vic. That was 
that was the that was the uh, the explanation used is that Vic was dying, and then they get there, and Vic is like, "I'm not dying. I don't know why they told you that." Oh. And then the holodeck shuts off, and they get the message from Nog. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. I I don't think them all coming back because Vic is dying is really that interesting. <laughs> However, when they were saying before they before they explained who was dying and they were like, oh, he's dying. We need to see him. I was thinking it was Odo, Mm -hmm. in which case I thought that made a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because I don't know why you would get him off of the planet to be on the station and then he's dying. That's a little trickier. But if you need a character who is if the if you need an excuse for people to come back to say goodbye to somebody, it's, it's probably. Yeah. Just have Odo be dying for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, but it, maybe that's not fair because it is it is a, a a switcheroo there. So the uh, the the other as- interesting aspect about the uh, the episodes that they were talking there was how how little I would actually sorry I would actually really like it if it was like Odo said he's dying, so everybody comes back to see him. And then he's like, "I'm not di- no, of course I'm not dying. I just need to get you all here so I could tell you about the shit that's happening." Right, he's plotting. He, he's he's yeah. manipulating them. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that like um. I don't know if there's any good explanation that I would totally buy as a natural rationale for everyone to come back to the station mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Like it's very difficult to sort of assemble everybody after so long and just have it be a very easy breezy thing to get everybody back in place and restart the series and everything like that. The um the other thing that's that's funny is always uh when when fans get upset about uh continuity and stuff like that i always fu- think it's funny when the writers are just like what the fuck happened like what oh yeah <laughs> what that did was this really funny. i thought Ezri died in a, a plane crash or something yeah. it's like well, what is going on yeah. yeah that was hilarious that he couldn't i can't remember who it was was it renee echeverria uh, was that who it was he yeah. couldn't remember how jedzia had died yes he couldn't remember how jedzia died <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny because that's i mean that's a pretty big part of the show especially with all the behind the scenes stuff go you think you would remember that but yeah yeah obviously didn't write that episode i guess yeah but it's 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 been a long time and it's obviously a whirlwind i think that the other thing that yeah. the documentary does is it just shows like how relentless of a grind the production is. Mm-hmm. They don't really focus on that, but it's just, it's incredibly long days where the, the makeup stories of you get up at three o'clock in the morning, you get to the, the studio at like three thirty or four, they do makeup for three hours and then you're shooting for another uh, 14 or something. Mm-hmm. Just really long, really long days. But, um, I don't know how you do that for seven seasons. I know for seven years, it's like, that's, I guess the pay, the pay is obviously worth it and everything like that, but it's, it's a lot of work. To I mean, to 20, do that. 26 episodes a season, Let's say it takes two weeks to shoot an episode. You're basically working almost almost the entire year at that pace. Yeah, although I was I was thinking when they say that DS Nine, I think actually I don't have any uh, data to sort of back this up, but I, I feel like there were a lot more episodes of DS Nine where characters weren't in it at all, and mm-hmm. like the actors mm-hmm. sort of would get that time off. I, I feel like all the characters were in TNG pretty consistently all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that's the case for DS9, but I don't have any information to back that up. What would you think of the um, the structure of this one? I guess, I guess there's some things to get out of the way. Like it opens with a lot of – there's a lot of singing. Um, I would say that this is – I would describe this documentary as sort of like nerdily funny – I guess, like, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm i a little bit struck by how nerdy everybody is in it. Like, it's a, it's funny <laughs> that when a, a Hollywood show 
comes along, you think of everybody as sort of like like Hollywood celebrities, I guess, for whatever mm-hmm. that means in your mind's eye. But like it's a it's a nerdy show, a nerdy franchise, and it kind of works that everyone involved in it is also kind of nerdy and cute in that way, and yeah. it, it makes me yeah. laugh. But I, their personalities are always kind of funny to me that they're all kind of um, uh, like lighthearted, I guess would be the way to describe it. They're obviously not a list celebrities or anything like that, but it's a it's a nice quiet cast, in other words. Yeah, I um <clears throat> structure wise, it was a little weird. Uh I I I would have skipped Rom singing at the beginning and probably opened it with uh Andrew Robinson doing Garrick. I thought that was great. Uh but it was it seemed like a lot of fun stuff that they wanted to put in for the sake of putting fun stuff in. Uh and the the order in which they talked about stuff kind of felt like it jumped around a little bit too yeah um but you know i didn't i didn't find it distracting or anything i mean i i've watched the show so i knew what they were t- i think that's probably not that this is made for people who haven't watched the show but i think that's probably the one thing where it's like if you're not super familiar with the show maybe it's a, a tough watch but again it not not probably not for you in that case yeah yeah no it's it's very much um Obviously, a lot of referencing, a lot of fan experiences. It, it, yeah. it kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't really have a structure. It's what I was talking about before. It's like they tried to mm-hmm. cover a lot of material with it, and I mean, they open with, you know, one th- one thing that it seems that the whole motivation behind the documentary is there's a bit of a chip on everyone's shoulder about how DS9 was received at the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem happy about it now, and they make a, a point that they think like Netflix streaming and things like that have actually changed the outlook on the show because people can now well, see it and watch it that way. You know, the nicer you are to Netflix, the more likely they are to throw money at you to do more. Yeah, so. maybe he'll get his, his second documentary with it and stuff like that. But I think, um, I, I, I think that that's one of the more interesting parts of it. Like he, he I, bear set out to do this because he felt bad for the actors because he felt that they were getting kind of a raw deal and that people weren't remembering, but now it's, it's all come full circle and Netflix really appreciates it. And, you know, I think that they, the serialization thing is interesting. The documentary just made me think about like, like the studio is right. I think in that, in that time in the late nineties that no one is DVRing and no one can stream. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Think about if you were to like if you were in the final arc of DS9 and you missed two episodes in a row for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it's a big chunk to miss. You know, it's it's tough, and especially when they're yeah. showing it to syndicated markets where uh, I think Siddig uh, makes the like everyone syndicated TV just has to be like a McDonald's Happy Meal. Like it has to be right, what you right. expect every single time because they're going to chop it up and send it out in different directions. And what they, I mean, they did it because the show was unpopular relatively. And, you know, and they were allowed to sort of take these chances, but mm-hmm. they certainly didn't help their cause in a lot of ways, which made for a more interesting show. But it, like, I I find myself sympathizing with the the producers and executives who are like, you can't really do that at this point in TV history. Well, I don't know if that's entirely um, accurate because when what when did this start? Ninety five, ninety three, ninety three. Oh wow, it's earlier than I thought. Um, and it ended 99. in it ended in ninety nine. Okay, all right. So at that point, yeah, probably. Um, but like I'm, as we've talked about before, you've got your stuff like your X Files and your Twin Peaks and your Buffy the Vampire Slayers and and stuff that is doing serialized stuff. Uh, that 
I think it's the approach maybe was a little bit more uh, gray um, as far as, as why you might lose some people. Because I think the difference with Deep Space Nine is that they had a lot of character stuff going on that really stuck um, in a way that some of the other shows didn't. And even with like, if you take Buffy as an example, um, towards towards the end of the series, like, well, maybe not even towards the end. Like, I would say probably into season two and three when they really started telling these big arcing stories. Every single episode starts with previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then you get like a 10-minute refresher about what you're going to need to know going into this episode. Yeah. They don't do that on Deep Space Nine. Uh, they just dump you right into it. I don't know if they did it at the time. I, d- I don't feel like usually that stuff sticks Makes on it streaming. Into the episode. Yeah, that always feels like an official part of the episode. When yeah, they do that. and they they never did that on Deep Space Nine. And I think I wonder if I I think it might have been more successful with that structure if they were more if the. Uh, uh, studio was more open to it because I feel like them having to have one foot in each in each uh, world you know, on or each side, yeah, yeah, in each world on each side of the fence, kind of stops them from committing to to doing this new thing the most effective way they could. So then you end up in a situation where you do like three episodes in a row uh, with each one has no primer for the last one, so people who kind of dip in don't know what's going on. Yeah, so I think that's where you probably get messed up a little bit. Um, and especially for Star Trek, sure, as a Star Trek show where generally it's episodic and there is a understood way of how those shows work, it's probably going to be jarring for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but to say that nobody else was really doing it, I think, is a little disingenuous. But I wasn't running TV in a TV <laughs> studio in 1993, so who knows? Yeah, and they they bring up the interesting point about. Uh, there was some TV critic talking about how Homicide was the first show to have like all with scenes with all black actors mm. in it, mm-hmm. and DS9 was like, "Well, we actually did it too." And you, you know, looking back on it, it, it's not an aspect of the show that they really pushed all that hard. Like they never mm-hmm. really drew attention to it. But that probably would have been awkward in Star Trek to do something like that and bring attention to it. But they certainly had the episode Far Beyond the Stars, which was based on that idea and how many black mm-hmm. actors were in the cast that they could uh, use for things like that. That that's kind of the, to me the the biggest thing that I feel that you can never go back and really experience is like w- obviously what it was like to watch the show and, and the mentality of watching the show in 1993 or something mm. and feeling like what was what was strange about it like when we talked about Cisco shaving his head we never commented it on cause that even that, that just feels alien to me like in the early 90s people were like black men without hair are prisoners like what what, i don't even i don't even i don't i'm not aware of that but i guess it must have been just some sort of like weird holdover that they didn't want to have Mm. a black man with a shaved head on tv but like nba players are shaving their head so i I didn't really understand what where that all came from it must have been in the ether but it's not something that we ever considered while we were watching the show yeah that was that was interesting especially hearing listening to that head of television talk about it where he kind of fumbled around and he, then he was like uh we wanted him to look less straight street <laughs> <laughs> and you know you know i i don't know i mean if if I, I didn't realize avery brooks was on a show that kind of looked like i don't know what it was but he kind of looked like shaft sort of yeah hawk uh, the, the show's yeah. called hawk yeah. yeah and i could see maybe if you've got that character coming that actor who looks like that coming off of that show 
you might want to change him to look more in line, whatever that means, with what the Star Trek aesthetic is versus a street show. Which I think Brooks actually does. Like Cisco, when you hear Brooks, Brooks was not interviewed for this, but they have old archival footage of him being interviewed. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, it's clear that Benjamin Cisco is a performance for Brooks. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, he's he doesn't talk like Ben Cisco. He doesn't talk like most humans. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. So it's, you know, like you, when when we see Cisco sort of losing it and doing like sort of weird takes with things, that's really Avery Brooks bursting out. And the facade is Benjamin Cisco because he's nothing right. like Benjamin Cisco. Yeah, which is which is, you know, very interesting. Uh, I, I have to see that t- that uh, audition tape that blew them away because yeah, wh- what was he doing in that? Um, you know, but like was tap if, dance? If, I don't know. If they were doing, if they were doing the um, like if he was playing Cisco like he plays it in the pilot, you wouldn't see a performance like that and go, oh man, this guy's like killing it or something mm. like that. Like, it, well, I think I think the the main thing that they were saying was they were expecting him to be younger and a little bit less. Um, mature they, or yeah. yeah they were thinking of, of of a commander who's who's younger a little less mature a little less prepared for this situation but and i i'd be curious to know how much they rewrote him um right did jake exist casting yeah did jake exist right. in the original version or, i mean yeah. even that that anger he has towards picard because of the death of his wife you know that's that's pretty that's pretty uh heavy sure of himself stuff that he's doing there you know he doesn't I don't think he comes off really at all in the first episode as really being immature or anything. I right. feel like they must have they must have tweaked that character a bit before before shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was too bad that they didn't get Brooks, but I, th- I think they they play enough older stuff of him that you get a sense of what he was like. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, difficult to work with. Uh, obviously, um, that that was that was my favorite my favorite bit. Was when they were talking to the uh, the DP or whatever that, D- that woman, yeah, the DP yeah. or the assistant director. <laughs> she was like, "So, are you gonna tell me what you want here, <laughs> or do you like what? What do you want me to do?" And then he like finally pulls her aside and tells her exactly what she what he wants, and he, she's like, "Okay, that's perfect, thank you." He's like slalom, slalom. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> see, what's interesting? Egg. What's interesting there is the stuff that he's saying to the actors. His like short you know, quote unquote jazz, their words, not mine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is they get it. Like he's, he's talking to another actor so he can use a little bit more abstract language to kind of convey what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you were to say that to a director of photography, they would probably just stare at you blankly and be like, okay, that's fine. But where do you want the lights? Yeah. And she, <laughs> the, the end of her story is basically her saying, what the fuck, buddy? Like, tell me what you want to do. And then he gives her a shot description of all the things yes. he wants to do, yeah. do which, is, which is nice. But he's, he's clearly difficult to work with in a lot of ways. Um, I wonder what he's like ordering food from a drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> he just he uses obviously the McDonald's numbering system, but it does it in some sort of <laughs> binary fashion or something. It does make a lot of sense. It's too bad that he wasn't super involved, but there's so much of the cast that you almost don't even miss him, really. Like, mm-hmm. th- there's just so many characters uh, and so many actors who were involved in, in things. And particularly, you get Aaron Eisenberg and um, Rene Auberjonois before they pass away, who mm. were both in this fairly prominently. And they also have they have a sequence where they're just talking to the guest uh, actors with Combs and uh, Alemo. Alemo might be my favorite character in the documentary. <laughs> oh, man. He's unbelievable. Like,. <laughs> 
<laughs> they pulled that. First of all, that, that wide shot of him and he's wearing these huge like Air Jordans. <laughs> during <yeah>. the interview. <laughs> First of all, I didn't realize the Cardassians were so horny. Yeah, yeah. Because they talked to Andrew Robinson and they're like, so what do you did? Did uh, did Garrick actually trust Bashir? And he's like, well, at first he just wanted to have sex with him. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, knowing that. OK, yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. And then we're talking to Alemo, and Alemo's like, yes, I, I've always figured Dukat wanted to sleep with Kira because honestly, at the time, I also wanted to sleep with Kira. <laughs> what do you, um, I was, I was watching, <laughs> I was watching this with Amy. And w- like, uh, going back to your point about people who are unfamiliar with uh, Star Trek watching this, she was, she was sort of dumbfounded by, I, I think she thought it was incredibly stupid or incredibly weird in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, if you're removed from the the subject matter, I think that it comes across that way. But like she had questions about Alemo, where is what happens in the documentary a joke that they're playing up, or is there some weird thing where he desperately wanted to basically make out with Nana Visitor on screen, and they're kind of making fun of it? You know what I mean? Like there was this weird. There was this strange tension too. I don't know if Mark Alamo is doing this for the, like his artistic vision about what he wants to do, or whether or mm-hmm. not he actually wants to just have to be in a relationship with her and make her do things. Because they have that joke where Nana Visitor mentions his name instead of Ducat's name, and they mm-hmm. like make her redo it. And I, I don't know. Like I, I got a subtly unsettling feeling from all that stuff, even though they kind of played it up as a joke. Yeah, I. It's felt kind of to me like there was an uh, an in joke that Mark Alemo wanted to sleep with not a visitor, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or at least at least clearly was uh, um, <clears throat> not so much hiding his uh, his his affection towards her. Let's yeah. put it that way, yeah, yeah. And uh, which it, I he seems like a really interesting guy. He's I, also the I, Dave Mustaine of some kind of monster, where he's like, "Why does no one like me?" <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty funny. Yeah, best part of that movie. Um, but yeah, he's a, he's an interesting character. Uh, I didn't really know what to, that's the most interesting thing I think about seeing these documentaries when they talk to these actors who play these characters you're so familiar with is where on the scale of that character they fall. Mm. And Ducat is, is, is a fairly straightforward character. He's got a little bit of a, uh, uh, you know he's obviously sinister, but he's he's fairly reserved. But he can go big when he wants to. And then Mark Alamo is just like this wild guy. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 interesting, kind of seeing him bouncing around on the couch, like shifting positions, like talking about X, Y, and Z. And he's like, I thought you all hated, you know, kind of getting big with his talking about <laughs> his experiences and stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. I I don't. I think that his um. I think his performance as Ducat is good. We didn't really talk about Ducat all that much in the sort of the wrap up thing, but I, I think the documentary highlights like it's a pretty good performance from him. And mm. you know when he does Far Beyond the Stars and he's the uh, corrupt cop and everything, it's it's a very good break. But Bear makes the point about you know writers show actors that they like them by bringing them back repeatedly and giving them right. more to do and things like that. And they obviously like Ducat enough, and then they kind of let him down at the very end of the series. But yeah, it's like the. I, I think that all the actors are fairly interesting in a lot of ways. Like I think that um, I think that Colin Meany thinks that Star Trek is ridiculous. <laughs> yes, that was pretty funny. 
I don't. I think he looked at it as kind of like a paycheck and was probably just potentially happy that it all worked out. But he hates the makeup process. He, he doesn't seem like he likes acting all that much in general. But he's he's well. He he was the one who uh, he was the only one in the cast who didn't give a shit when Worf showed up because he was like, I actually didn't even think about it. I mean, I like Michael Dorn. He's a friend of mine. I knew him from TNG, and I thought it was going to be fun. He's like, please. And everyone take some else. Of my everyone scenes. else is like, yeah. yeah. Everyone else is like, oh my god, this is going to destroy us. They're they're folding us into TNG, and we're not going to be able to stand on our own. Kira's worried about she's going to end up being like running to get coffee because Worf is going to be the new number two. And Cole Meany's like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like I like Mike. The the thing that they open up this documentary with is the uh, fan feedback, and they write letters. Uh, they read letters continuously throughout the documentary. Some of them are letters that came in later seasons because they're talking about things that happened in the last season in some of the mm. letters, um, which is which is interesting and you know shows you how little things change over the course. Like there's always going to be people complaining about the new series and stuff like that. Um, it's I, I guess it's a little bit different back then because you actually had to take the time to write the letter. So you're pretty dedicated mm-hmm. at that point. You can't mm-hmm. just send a tweet or something at somebody complaining about it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really the... Like, is this... I, I, I guess the documentary was made right around the turning point of Star Trek DS9 turning the corner in its popularity, really, because it feels like they've been living with this for 20 years. But at this point, it doesn't feel right to say that ds9 is an underappreciated show you know what i mean right yeah um i they've, uh, they've been producing this for a couple of years so it is kind of like the turning point netflix came around a little bit earlier but it certainly feels like in the past five years it's had a resurgence or something star trek in general has yeah some of those interviews i think were from as far back as like 2015 mm-hmm. i think that's when the writer's uh, room was done oh that's when they did it. okay yeah and, and i think one of the cast get-togethers was was from back then too so uh yeah i i you know it's funny because i don't know when i would say the the this resurgence happened and i don't know if i would call it as big a resurgence as some other things because i've always known deep space nine as the dark horse like the uh for lack of a better term the 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 thinking man star trek Mm -hmm. where it's like oh everybody loves tos everybody loves tng but if you really want to get into the weeds if you really want the good shit that you got to watch deep space Nine. like that's how i've always known it yeah uh when people talk about it um so i'd be curious to know exactly what this resurgence how it's is it is it that there's new people coming to it, or is it now just now that these people who like it have have more of a voice? You know what I mean? Yeah, I because like I, I know that we have listeners who do this who watch the entire series, but I'm ne- I would never I'm not the kind of person I know I'm talking to somebody who did this for Cheers, but I'm not the kind of person that if I discovered DS9 at this point and didn't have the podcast, I would not watch all the episodes in a row. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's too much at that point. So I wonder if it's what you're saying is true, whether it's not it's just the fans who were always there now just have a louder voice that can get through to the production team side of things, or if people are actually really getting into it. I know we have listener Kyle who got into it post all of this happening, uh, but I don't know if he's an outlier in that case. Yeah, and I don't know how much the... uh... I mean, I think the the increase in convention culture has a big thing part part of it too. Yeah, Yeah. Where I, you know... 
10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years. Yeah, I would say I would say 10 years ago. I don't know if these actors are doing the number of conventions per year that they do now. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe they were. I don't know. I don't know. The time means nothing to me anymore. But, uh, uh, you know, like uh, when I when I started going to conventions in college uh, in the early mid 2000s, they weren't there wasn't a lot of uh, celebrities there and they were they it wasn't this big um sort of infrastructure that there is now where they they almost like tour the country together um but now everyone i go to it's like well there's five people from deep space nine there's five people from the rocky horror picture show up oh, we're having a cast reunion for you know back to the future over here um it, and that obviously is is bringing people out of the woodwork and they're they're actually getting to see their fans up close and see how many people like the show which 15 years ago 20 years ago you're not getting especially especially when you're doing the show and right. you're in the weeds working that schedule you're not you don't have no you have no concept of whether or not people are watching your show yeah yep pre-internet obviously yeah too. yeah there's no there's no instagram to go on to and real see how many people are liking your photo and writing really gross stuff about you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. putting up memes and uh <laughs> what um what was your biggest surprise from this documentary um, my biggest surprise was, uh, the stunt guy who looks exactly like David Coverdale from Whitesnake <laughs> that they talked to once. And I was like, man, is he, is he have a wig on? That's a yeah. great wig. And he looks just like the guy from Whitesnake. But, looks um, totally like a stunt man should like, uh, look, yes, I he think. Does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When they showed him at first, I was like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and then they, <laughs> then they he's like, the okay, extent. he's there. And then, okay. Then a little bit later, they tell you he's a stunt guy. I'm like, ah, that makes sense. Well, they, they show the shot of him as a Bajoran security guard who gets knocked off the promenade. And that's his like introduction. It's like, oh, there he yeah. is. He's that guy. Yeah. Um, my biggest surprise, I think, was listening to them talk about, uh, well, Two things. One, that 20 years of hindsight hasn't really allowed them to speak, I assume, candidly about whether or not Ezri was a good character, because they mm. all seem to think that she was. And I don't think that she's not, but I think from watching that last season, it seemed like they didn't know what to do with her. And the way they talked about her in this, it was like, oh, she was great. She was, uh, she was so fun to write, and blah, blah, blah. Those episodes, she does not seem like she's fun to write. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I the, wonder if it's them not remembering or if they're just being because I do this I, I do think this is a little bit of a puff piece of a documentary oh oh 100% yes like yeah a, yeah little, a little bit is understating like I think that I even you know you mentioned Ira Bear going at that TV executive I, there's one scene in this that I really absolutely kind of despise which is the one where he's talking to his editor and they're saying oh, yeah, yeah. You, didn't, you didn't do gender sexual politics uh, the right way. Mm-hmm. The the problem with that is that it's clearly a scripted scene that they're acting out. You know, it's mm. not, he's not being interviewed and giving an answer about it. He's, he's doing this sort of like dog and pony show about how they didn't really do all that well. And it feels like they just tacked it on so that all of the previous stuff, which is them talking about what they did well, it doesn't come across as like, oh, aren't we so wonderful? Oh, let's put in one mm-hmm. thing that we didn't really do all that bad. But I didn't like the fact that it was scripted, that it was so like, 
obviously constructed that they were going to talk about something like that. It, it just felt artificial and kind of like a fake pat me on the back thing for the show. And I, I didn't really appreciate it. I feel, I feel the show or the, the documentary does that occasionally too much in this. And I know mm-hmm. it's a puff piece and they want to, it's kind of a celebration and everything. But at the same time, it kind of makes me roll my eyes every time that they get into things like that about Star Trek, how about how important the show is and all that stuff. And, you know, it's inevitable when you talk to fans and things like that. But it, it just felt, it feels it's like sappy or something, like n- not not realistic, I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think that w- that probably would have played better if it had just been Ira Bear in in interview format instead of that like weird fourth wall breaking thing where they are clearly i mean i assume he wrote it yes but still you know why not just say it in an interview format so it yeah feels from the less, heart yeah yeah but the other um, the, the the thing that it ties into is um like they talk about their female characters and i would mm-hmm. i would say that kira is a great female character i think i think dax is fine kira is very good they have a montage where they play the tracy uh, Bonham, I'm a bitch. I'm oh, a lover. Yeah. Thing. That was that was. And not but great, as but. as I was watching it, I was like, "Ooh, eighty five percent of the female characters in the show are not that great." <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, like when, 80- when they're talking about well rounded female characters, and then they cut to Keiko O'Brien. It's right. Like, it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. And you know, I I this is outside of this, but I I always wonder about the fact like. Apparently, all it takes to have people consider you to be a great female character is that you have a woman who acts like a man, you know? And right. I, I wonder if you could ever have, like, you know, people will never say that someone, I'm just picking out, like, um, the uh, Mad Men wife. Like, mm-hmm. the role is to be the, a woman of the era, you know? And it's a good performance because that's what she's doing in that. But it's not like... I, I just feel that there's this weird praise that goes to female characters that are basically just men and everything but actor choice for how mm-hmm. they're played. Mm-hmm. And not that that makes Kira bad, but it doesn't, it's not like an, I don't understand the elevation aspect to it. Like, I think there's a lot of great performances and you could have a really great performance that it's not anything like that. But that montage of the female characters is just like, yeah, you had women in your show, but a lot of them aren't great. Not that all the men are great either, but it's just it's funny right. when you see a montage format with Keiko O'Brien so prominently portrayed as like a main character in it. Well, what I would say is while the majority of their female characters maybe aren't great characters um in the way that uh that Kira is, um they have a lot of different types of women on the show. They do. Yeah. And I think they all uh, each one of those characters is it serves a different purpose, and I don't really think that they they have like women on TOS are fairly pigeonholed for the most part. Yes, you know it's uh, women who aren't Uhura are they're, fairly even even Uhura even still is she's just legs. They're just yeah. legs in a miniskirt. Yeah, yeah, and so they're fairly pigeonholed. Even on TNG, it's a little better, but you know it's not, not great. great. Yep. Yeah, like you've Troy got and Crusher, Crusher are the weakest. Troy, are some of the weaker yeah. characters. Yeah. Um, it, but on Deep Space Nine, you've got all or all different types of characters for women to play. Uh, you know, some more masculine than others, some more feminine than the others. Um, you know what? You I know think. What? Oh, ahead. sorry. Well, I, what I think it might be is that it's not. It's not necessarily that you have to act like men, but I think what they did really well in the pilot is that the women 
have a kind of equal standing with the men. Yes. Like there's a, when when you see Dax and Kira in the opening pilot episode, it's not the Deanna Troy just there to give like emotional supports and the doctor like kiss your boo-boo and make you better. Exactly. They're, They're actually like real characters who exist there and Dax you Dax is a fairly feminine character at least she develops oh, yeah. that way yeah. and I, I think it's just how you portray that that characterization and it's not about being this like force of personality it's just having an equal standing with the men while still being feminine is also a good character to have yeah I when I when uh when Nana Visitor mentioned that she thought Kira read like a man I was actually surprised at that. And I think I think what you're saying is probably what she meant because I I never thought of Kira as like, you know, this hyper masculine female character. I mean, I think she's just as assertive and and equal and is in equal standing with everybody else. I don't I don't consider her like, you know, Ooh, if this was a guy, it would, you know, it, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's slamming, slamming brewskis in the bar and then kicking some ass right, or something. Yeah. I mean, she's, yeah. she's, uh, she's a very feminine character. Uh, it's, it's not the, it's not the, uh, uh, the, her defining trait, which, you know, it is in the mirror universe. That's her thing. Yeah, man. that's yeah. true. In yeah. the mirror universe, it very much is her defining trait. Um, but you know, it's one of those, I, it is, it is this weird shorthand for, that I think is is really hacky at this point of a strong female character, which is a phrase that I think a lot of people misunderstand, um, tends to mean, yeah, like she's got guns and fights people. It, yeah. it, it, it's the it, – everybody learned the wrong lessons from Ripley and Linda Ham- and uh, Sarah Connor and took the – tough badass elements and just imprint that onto their female character which makes them oh then now they are a strong female character there's a there's a uh I, f- I was watching one thing where they were referring to this as the trinity effect in reference to trinity from the matrix where it's like she's she's not really a great character but she's presented in this sort of masculine hyper badass way but her role in the story is ultimately to be uh saved by the good guy Mm-hmm. And so it's not you're not really creating this compelling character when they're a just a one note. The, the the only thing the only characteristic they have is they wear sunglasses, you know. Yeah, and yeah. they are still there to be uh, inevitably be saved by the by the male character. With Ripley and Sarah Connor, as masculine as they can be, their their story is expressly feminine because they are both of their drives are completely mother based. Yeah, they they are doing very uh, uh, like aliens is a story about two mothers fighting each other. Yeah, you know, uh, so it's I, I think people w- when you get these kind of things, people end up taking the wrong elements away from it and then imprinting it on things moving forward. Like, oh, I know how to do this. I'll make her right like Ripley. I'll make her a badass. It's like, well, that's not it. That's not the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And I I think the the female characters on this show largely skip past that um, oh i think so too yeah it's it, it, the celebration of the characters is a little bit distinct from i guess the the quality of the characters because they do have such a large cast and i think that one of the things the documentary does for you is that it does highlight uh they have that montage where they name all the guest characters like we did in the podcast where they mm-hmm. just list all the actors and everything who are involved with the show and i think that's really the main takeaway for me at least from the uh production side is just like 
this army of characters that they ended up making. And I, I yeah. like when the writers are talking about how impressed they are that with what they d- did with Damar, for example, in this, mm. and just saying like, oh, he came from nothing. Like he had two lines in his first episode and he actually came into like a pretty uh, integral part of the whole final arc and everything like that. Yeah. And the, 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 but they also, I, I think that, I think there's clever not mentioning of some people as well, because they don't mention uh Vedic, or Kai, Kai Wen at all uh, in this. Yeah, they really don't. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of surprised by that because, you know, when we were talking about that sequence of great characters for women, I think Kai, uh, Kai Wen is a fantastic character. I don't think that she was ultimately used particularly well. And maybe you could, you know, you could go either way on the performance. But I think the having that type of character and having the uh, the role that she played in, in all of the proceedings of the show, I think that's a great character. Yeah, yeah. The um the other thing that I was surprised by was uh, when they were talking about wanting to differentiate themselves from the other Star Trek shows and create their own villain, but they wanted to hedge their bets and create three, mm-hmm. ultimately becoming what uh, what became the Dominion. And I found that really interesting because um, looking at those three creations the Jem'Hadar the Vorta and the the uh, changelings or the founders I don't think any one of those could stand on its own and be a be the you know defining villain for Deep Space Nine yeah, like they, they can't be just, the Klingons of TOS they're just yeah. Yeah, yeah like if it was just the Jem'Hadar that gets boring super fast yep if it's just the Vorta that gets boring eh, the Vorta you, you have a little bit more leeway to, to go there but still you're like well what do they do you know what's their their thing right uh, scenes with them yeah. are a lot of fun, but ultimately, what is their? Why are they the villain? Yes. Um, and the the founders, I think the concept of them wanting to spread around, spread out, and you know, we, we saw that humans can't run things, so we're going to do it. That's a good concept, but I don't think it's super. It's quite as believable without those other two things inside the the casing of the Dominion. Uh, being the the thing that helps them execute that plan. The the changelings went as far as they could in basically the home front Paradise Lost season, where they're infiltrators for a little bit. The yes, like yeah. that th- that's really what they're good at. But you can't do six seasons of that. Right, like it, it just right. becomes a little bit old. So I, I would say that the the founders are interesting because there was a lot there, but you can't really do too much with them uh, because they're one trick of imitating people kind of gets old a little bit quickly. So mm-hmm. as, and I think what you're trying to say is just like the combination of, of the three races allowed them to have a little bit of flexibility in what kind of villain stories that they wanted to tell, yes. because you, you can focus on one species and go from there. Yeah. And it, and it gave them a, a high concept story that is different from most other stories that have been told in Star Trek. And they're, they're a very different villain in that way. Well, Arguably, they're not. Arguably, they're kind of like the Borg, but they can talk. Uh, if you really wanted to get down to the essence of stuff, where yeah. it's they're you know just trying to assimilate other places, except they do it politically instead of just killing everybody. Yeah, they have. Um, they have. An, they have uh, I, I guess I would push back and just say that they have inner conflict that the Borg lack. Like they. Oh, totally. They do have oh, tension think, within themselves. Yeah, I'm just talking like if you really you know. Ultimate goals are the same. Yeah, if you really pull back and look at what the what both of these villains are doing, it's essentially the same thing. Yep. Um, but what makes the Dominion more interesting is that there's politics involved. There's three different races that are involved instead of just this one, you know, forward driving momentum thing that can't be stopped. So it's it's 
it'll it allows for something a lot more interesting making odo making them be the 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 uh the same race as odo is a really good decision yeah um did they the one thing i'm surprised that they didn't do because i would have pushed really hard for this i know they did it briefly they they had they replaced bashir with a changeling briefly right yeah uh, well yes in in the logic of the episodes, it had to have been the way that Bashir was a changeling for some of the episodes that we saw. Yeah, I'm surprised that they didn't push that a little further and have like one season where they're like, okay, for this season, the big reveal at the end of the season is that Bashir has been a changeling the entire this entire season. Yeah. And so we're going to write him as though he is playing both sides, and then that's going to be your big reveal. Uh, at the end because you know that's i don't know that's so much fun yeah <laughs> to be able to take a complete left turn with a character and then you've got the you know bashir comes back from wherever he's been captured he's very different for what he's been experiencing and stuff um yeah it's i'm pro- surprised that they didn't do that do more of that it's probably tough just because of the serialization thing you know if you if you can't follow that arc, it might become confusing, I suppose, for what you think is going on. I, I guess you could disguise it by only revealing a little bit about Bashir and maybe not having it be like a thing where the audience is in the know about what's going on with Bashir. Mm-hmm. I would, I think it's more effective as a storytelling thing if the audience is aware that Bashir is a changeling and no one else is, uh, but it would be difficult to track it if you weren't catching yeah. every single I think, episode. I think you probably would... would would have to reveal it like maybe halfway through the season. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, it, it would, it would have to be like what we talked about with discovery, the first season of discovery with what they did with, um, Ash Tyler, how yeah. they just sat on it and sat on it and sat on it and sat on it. And when they finally revealed it, it was like, eh, well, whatever, where the fun of it would have been if the audience knows, but nobody else knows. So then you have this character who is doing underhanded shit that nobody knows is happening because they all trust him, but the audience does. So yeah, I, yeah, I would probably say if you're going to do that for a season, I would probably reveal it maybe like halfway through the season or maybe like three quarters of the way through the season. So then you can have him doing shady shit on deep space nine, but you can also cut back to where the real Bashir is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I've, um, I, I, I do enjoy the documentary. Um, I don't like there's there's again so much in it that it's hard to sort of wrap your hands around like what else is to talk about it really. But I think that it does mm-hmm. a it does a fairly good job at summing up the series. I think it does a pretty good job of sort of showing where like DS Nine sits in terms of the series and everything like that. And I, I think that they did a good job of you know I think everyone is being like eighty percent honest with. <laughs> with what they think which is mm. enough for me um I'd i still i still would want to see a really investigative reporting independent documentary about things like that like i always find that a little bit more interesting but i, I thought that this is this is a good way to go in the direction that they did go yeah i was a little surprised that they in talking about the stuff that happened with terry uh, terry farrell they didn't really come to any conclusions about it yeah, you know they they uh, <clears throat> they talked about it. They brought it up. They had that scene where she got really emotional about it. But then then it was like Michael. They cut to Michael Dorn going, "Well, the only people who know what happened are the two <laughs> people in that thing." So it's like, well, what are we supposed to take away from right. that? You've got yeah. the, <clears throat> I guess, the idea is to make your own decision about it. But I don't know. That kind of feels shitty because you've got 
the the head of television saying that she wanted out and then Terry Farrell being like I didn't want out you know I didn't want to be killed off yeah um and and then they're kind of like well who's to say yeah I, it felt it felt very strange that they they really kind of danced around any sort of uh well, I mean, they're actual answer about what happened there. They're deliberately dancing around who the producer was that said things like, mm. you know, and, and it's tough yeah, if, you're not, too, yeah. if you're not going to say who it is to. I always like, you know, not, I'm sure it was an unpleasant experience for her, but I'm. <laughs> it's like if, if I was I always watch that scene where she has uh, she gets uh, upset about it. And I'm always like, you know, if you're one of the other cast members who's thinking you're coming in for a fun interview session for this documentary, and then one of your coworkers just like bursts into tears about what happened to her, it's like, ooh, ooh, not not much to say. It's it's one of those things. Like, I, I just feel it's like, if I was in that situation, I'd probably have the Dorn opinion. It's like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what mm. happened, really. Um, it's too bad. She couldn't hang around. But it's... It, it's... If it, I don't know, it just feels like one of those strange things that I I feel like a TV job is almost not real life in a lot of ways. Mm. Like I just have a hard time. I don't know. It, it's it's hard to put myself in the position of a woman on the TV show at that point. And right, she is she was in control of her career at that point. She she left and went to a major network sitcom. Which you mm-hmm. can't really hold it against an actress for doing right. that. Like it's more money, right. it's more prestige. You can potentially go places. You have a bigger audience. You're working with Ted Danson, who's in the, like at that point probably an A-list celebrity or on his way down from an A-list celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so to come back and be like, I didn't really want to leave DS9 is like, well, it feels like she's more upset with herself than the actual other people who caused that to happen. If they did cause mm. it, you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to how much pressure she got about it because it sounded like the the offer that she got was not very good. Like it's, she, I believe she said they were given multiple they, people got that offer though, is what she says in this. Yeah, you know, but I mean, that doesn't mean it's good. No, know? it doesn't. It, but it means that the other people <laughs> took it. But that, what I'm saying is, she is making that choice to not accept it at that point. Like you have to, you you have to take a little bit of your own personal sure, responsibility I, for that stuff but she's also she's also talking about how as someone who has who was in a fairly prominent role on the show and has been treated as such up to that point she is not really being considered as as far as as what the next step is going to be she's giving being given this ultimatum uh it sounded like she was trying to work with them, but they were not. They were not giving her anything. It, what it's, is what it sounds like? Yeah, and, and she and, seemed fairly. She seemed fairly uh, put out by the way that she was treated in those negotiations. Yes, and I, I, I would, I would have to think that the way that they treated her was unfair. But it, it's like it'd be one thing if she ended up destitute from that position i'd be like oh what an outrage you know but she she kind of got a better job you know what i mean like in terms of being an actress and i'm sure that she went through some sort of like you know horrible 90s tv executive like sexist bullshit that well she had i mean to deal she's, with. she had that she said that one i i don't know if it was during the the uh negotiations or, or when it was but the one producer told her that if it wasn't for star trek she'd be working in kmart or something mm-hmm. yeah and if yeah, if they said that to me, I'd fucking leave too. Yeah, you know that's that's awful. Yeah, yeah, and and 
She's also in the weakest position because her character is easily replaceable, as they showed. Yeah. Like, it's not that it's right. going to be good, but you can easily replace the Dax character and have another Dax come in, and it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that whole situation is 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 really kind of gooey. I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather had her than Esri for the seventh season, certainly. Sure. Yeah. 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 And I feel bad I about mean, that, and I wish that... You know, I can understand being frustrated with not being involved to close out the show, and especially the way that they end the final episode's montage with no Jedzia images mm-hmm, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's it's tough. I don't, I don't like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how I feel. I think it's complicated. I guess would be my takeaway from all that stuff. But I think she, she made the right decision for herself at that point. Yeah, and it sounds it sounds to me like trying to parse my way through everything that's going on with this situation. Sounds to me like contract negotiations came up. She had an offer from another show for for more money and probably a, a little bit more uh, <clears throat> um, cachet. Yeah, and I assume she probably said, "Can you guys match this?" Mm-hmm. And they said, "No." Here's your ultimatum contract. Take it or leave it. And she was like, "Well, can we talk about this?" And they were like, "No, you should you be working at Kmart." And she's like, All right, "Fuck you," <laughs> <laughs> and she left, which I don't blame her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, she she went with the higher contract. That's that's how. I mean, the, and it comes back to the character. If it was Cisco, the show is in a much harder negotiating. Place. Oh yes, yeah. you know yeah. they they can't just get rid of Cisco by killing him off. They you could kill off any of these characters, but it, it's very different to kill off Cisco the emissary than it is Dax the seventh of seven Daxes so far. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anything else that you want to say about this one? We've talked for an hour, actually. I feel that there's a lot here, but I don't. I don't really know where else to go with it. It's. It's just. It's an enjoyable little documentary that I don't mm. think you know particularly illuminates everything like in crazy lights or anything, but it does a good job of getting to the important beats and you see everybody and see how everybody's aged and see what their thoughts are about the process and all that stuff. And uh, I don't know. Anything else you have to say? Uh, I kind of wish they would do a reunion show. Like you know, the, the, I mean, the episode that they talked about here? Yeah, kind of. Like, if they did, like, a six-episode thing, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also, <laughs> I also in that uh, that little aside, that scripted aside where they were talking about gender or whatever, um, when, <laughs> when they talk about... <laughs> when uh, I think Ira Bear says something like, yeah, we never really dealt with gender norms, and the other guy goes, well, what about Profit and Lace? And he's like, well... I mean, it's aged worked, well. <laughs> yeah, that worked pretty good at the time, and it probably would work better, even better now. I was like, oh boy, they really did not understand what they were doing in that episode. Yeah, that's the other. Um, th- there's a bunch of funny lines. I didn't really write them down, but yeah, he praises Profit and Lace. He's like, that was a good idea. It was just misunderstood at the time. Yeah, and uh, Ezri Dax, they talk a lot. They talk. They talk very highly about the Worf and Ezri relationship. The writers do. They think that that, or they at least yeah. misremember that as a good time. Um, and there's a few other sort of random things. Like you, what, what's kind of neat is that when you see the writers' room working together, you can see there's probably a science, not a science, but there, there, there's a kind of art to assembling a writers' room where all the writers have a different skill that they bring into it mm. where like um 
Robert Hewitt Wolf is obviously the guy who just remembers details because he didn't even work on the show in the last two years. And he's like, I, I remember all this shit. Like, why does no one else remember any of this? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. he he's the writer that you'd want in the room just to be like, can we do this idea? And he says, no, we did that in the second season. You go, oh, that's right. And <laughs> I, I feel all the God, characters... If I, if I could make a career off of that, that would be amazing. <laughs> you, have, uh, you have Hans Beamler, who's just old man, who just sits there. And then you've got Ron Moore, Renee Echevarria, and then I receive Bear sort of shepherding it. But you, you can see why... I, it was, how a writer's room works. Yeah, I think it was was Han Beamer who was like, "All right, stay with me here." Vedic Kira. It's like, yeah, because <laughs> they're Bishop Bishop Kira. Yeah, and he's, everyone's was like, "Yeah, that's a good idea." And then their head they're thinking like, "What the hell else?" Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's not. It's not like it's this high concept idea here. It's like that's one of two things that would happen with Kira. I think. I think, I think uh, poor Hans realized that there was like the first. That was like the first moment of uh, creating the scripts. He's just like, "I got nothing at this point. I don't remember any of this." Because that's you a know, perfect if I, example. If I if I if I were to pitch season eight and 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 do one of these like reunion things, I think the difference that I would probably do, I I do like the way that they were doing it here. I think it's pretty pretty interesting. I would, especially now, the way that people watch TV and the way it's it's taken in and stuff. I don't even know if I would put them all on Deep Space Nine until like episode five. Yes, I, I was. That's what that's what stuck out to me is the most um, archaic of the design that they were doing for this show is that they were like, we have to bring everyone back. At, towards the end, yeah. Iris Stephen Bear starts mentioning like we have a lot of episodes. We don't need to bring everybody back at this point. Right, but it did right. feel very much like a a Star Trek DS Nine episode from nineteen ninety seven would start the season with everyone reassembling at that point. Yeah, I, I I would be on board with the same way of starting it, where it's like Nog is on his way back to Deep Space Nine, and he blows up or something, and that's like your catalyst. But yeah, I don't know if I would put everybody back on the, especially if you've got like a larger, a large scale threat that affects all of these different areas. I think that would be a good excuse to like touch in on on Worf on Kronos yes. for a while, and you know, and take take a little bit more time before you bring everybody back to the station. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because and yeah, no, I, I guess that's pretty. That's pretty much what I was thinking too. I would, just just to spend more time on a uh, Easter egg hunt to assemble them. Or so I'm almost thinking that feels like what the new Picard series is going to do uh, with him. But it would be would be that way. They, now that you've reminded me, I thought that they. Uh, I also thought that they miswrote where O'Brien would be at that point of his career. Yeah, I don't see yeah. him as the dean of a academy no. at all. He's been retired for like 25 years. Yeah, he, I just see him as a tinkering family man who drinks too much. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I, how how long do you think they would be able to resist before they're like, oh, by the way, uh, Molly O'Brien and Joe Sisko are, are fiancés? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think, I think by episode two, I didn't two, like every kid. Them. Yeah, every kid being on DS9 is not a good idea, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I I think uh, um, I, I would I I think I would like I did like his name being Joe Cisco. I thought that was a yes. nice touch. Yeah, yeah. I I I think I would like uh, keep everybody off of the station for a few episodes, and then have the station function the way it 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 functioned in the concept of the show, being as like this this frontier outpost that you pass through. Yeah. So it's like Worf figures out this he has to go to here and he's like i'm gonna have to go through deep space nine in order to do this yes and so then he ends up there and then maybe by the time he gets there other people have already gotten there like unrelated you know that kind of thing yeah i I feel you'd the most natural way to me 
would be that something is happening in the gamma quadrant, the Dominion side of the mm-hmm. wormhole. Yeah. And that would cause everyone to have to get to the mouth of the wormhole, which is where DS9 exists. Yeah. And that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you could, if the, going off of the idea that they set up, I, I assume the Gem Hadar are yes. still in the gamma quadrant. Yep. So yep. if you start, re- f- start realizing that, oh, okay, seems like the wormhole is opening up and these, you know, Kira is kind of, turning a blind eye to certain things coming through the wormhole. Oh, it's Jem'Hadar soldiers that are being shipped from the, the Gamma Quadrant over to Bajor and it, yeah. you know, this kind of stuff. I, I think that would be really interesting. I, and then at the beginning, you start it by killing Nog, blowing up the Defiant, and then two scenes later, they're like, wow, it's a good thing we got Defiant 3 on the way. <laughs> <laughs> they just, they, to save money, they just cut that uh, part out of the episode that was in DS9 and just replay it as if yes. like, it's like they just copy-paste 3 over, over top of the Defiant. Um before we go, the like the the one the one brilliant idea I think from the uh, episode eight ep- the season eight episode that they do is the Jem'Hadar converting to the Bajoran religion. I think is like a brilliant, yeah, brilliant thing that they should have done because the Jem'Hadar would have probably lost faith in the founders at this point. Like you could even oh, say that if, yeah. if the founders got sick or something or that it's not there, that they need a new direction because they're a directionless species without some kind of leadership like that. Or I would say they, not even that they have grown disillusioned. I, I would say that I, I assume that after the war is over, when, when Odo goes back and he's like, yeah, I'm going to help everybody out. I think the founders just cut themselves off from the Jem'Hadar. Oh, sure. Like there's, there's no reason why the, why they would interact with the Jem'Hadar anymore. So right. then, yeah, like you said, you've got the, the Jem'Hadar as this deeply religious people, or, you know, if you want to use the word religious, deeply religious or uh, faith-based group of people who no longer have that object of their faith anymore. Yeah. They have no so direction then, to their life if yes. the founders are gone. Yeah. And to, to bring them back to Bajor, which is like, a militarized version of Bajor, which kind of realizes that it has to protect itself at this point, like because of the occupation and things have maybe changed politically, but to them to recruit basically a crusade army for them mm. is, is really kind of a, a neat idea. And that felt to me the most logical conclusion of the DS9 story. Like and for all the nitpicking about O'Brien's career choices and like kind of weird to have Jake in the shower seeing his father and all that stuff. Like the, the Jem'Hadar Bajoran storyline felt like it would be a natural place to really kick off the next series of that show and made sense to me. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I, I just remembered one, probably the most surprising thing that I learned from this was uh, when we, when we were, when we were doing the final episode, we were talking about how, a lot of people think that it abandoned its core concept because they never brought Bajor into the Federation. Yeah. Ira Stephen Bear specifically says in this that he was really proud that they never did that. Yeah. I, I think I disagree with him. I don't I, – I, I can see his arguments. I don't know if I would have done the same thing, yeah. I guess. Well, it's just – it's interesting that it was clearly a conscious choice. It's yeah. not like they forgot to do it or right. something. They, they yeah. clearly were never going to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that is strange because you think they'd sneak something in dialogue-wise to explain that choice right. if they think that it's important, but they they didn't. They just decided not to. Yeah, and I mean, you know, maybe that's part of the story here too. Is like Kira is building up the gem, the the Bajoran army with the Gem Hadar because she is now in a certain position where instead of the Cardassians pressing down on Deep Space Nine, the Federation is pressing down on Deep or something yep. like that. Where it's like 
You know, she Bajor is now a, a much more high value target than it was. Um, that could be pretty interesting. All right, let's call it a day there, I think. Thank you very much, guys, for listening. If you enjoyed the Open content. Open on Deep Space Nine. Pan a up. laser blasts from off screen into the core of Bajor, exploding the planet. <laughs> <laughs> then the rest writes itself. Ben Mendelsohn is the latest uh, commander <laughs> of the Jem'Hadar. All of the Jem'Hadar ships have miniaturized Death Star technology. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the show, patreon.com slash the Penske file is the best way to support us. Otherwise, all the social media links are down below. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Discord, if you want to join the conversation. We'll be back. I think the next thing we're going to do is a Kelvin movie, Clay, after yeah. this. So we'll be starting with Star Trek 2008. Get your beastie boys ready. That's right. Cue your iPods. We're about to go deep with Star Trek. And I think that's it. Otherwise, we're just going to be... um. We're going to be slowing down to one podcast a week, probably, one movie a week until Picard starts, and then we'll uh, do the Picard one episode a week until, until the end of that series, I think. Maybe something else will fill the time in between, or if we have some sort of one-off thing that we want to do, that'll make sense. But that's pretty much the schedule going forward for now. I'll probably post an update video or an update podcast, too, just so that everyone knows it. I think that's it. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? Um, I don't think so. Rotten Horror Picture Show, which is the horror movie podcast, should be starting fairly soon, maybe like towards the end of the month, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, and that'll be me and Amanda, who joined us on the Real Ripe, Real Rotten for Wes Craven. Uh, we'll be doing the Rotten Tomatoes 200 highest rated horror movies list, so that should be fun. Yep, yep. You've already got a couple, but get a couple more, and then we'll start releasing them. I think that's it. Thank you, patrons, for supporting the show. Much appreciated. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. And that's it for what we left behind. We're done with DS9 at this point. It seems like it's over. Uh, And I guess that's pretty much it. So thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.